You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So those words were written um, 600 years before the events of uh, the last day of the life of Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about the last day, if you know anything about the passion narratives and the gospels, it's absolutely amazing that that would have been written by this prophet um, over 500 years before the events occurred. And it is, in my opinion, the most stunning um, prediction of what happens when Jesus comes anywhere in the Old Testament. And it's very hard to explain away, actually. Very hard for a skeptic to explain how that could have been written and then fulfilled so perfectly um, in the story of Christ. Uh, Isaiah wrote this in a, in a very hopeless time. Uh, he wrote this in a time when his country of Israel was uh, filled with false worship. Uh, they were worshiping all these other gods. It was a very torn, it was, it was a time when the, the country was torn apart um, in the north and the south. And they were fracturing in many of the ways we are. Uh, and the, the faith was being diluted in many of the same ways that our faith. Uh, churches are um, kind of going off the rails in our country. Um, and same thing was happening in his day. There was a massive external threat, as we have today, uh, with COVID. Uh, in, in their day, it was the, the nation of Assyria. But it was similar in that there was a lot of pressure being put on Israel. And then... God gives Isaiah this, this, this new hope, this vision of a new hope. And the hope is not a stronger economy. And the hope is not even more unity or greater national security or even a restored church, actually. It's not any structure at all. In the middle of all that, Isaiah is given this very mysterious figure that uh, he calls the servant and we've been looking at the servant the last two weeks. And a t- couple of weeks ago, Jonah showed us that the servant is primarily a king and a, a son of David and a king over the entire world. This cosmic ruler who would bring peace to the whole earth. And then last week we saw that uh, Isaiah shows us a little bit more in chapter 42 that this would not only be a king, but that he would be a prophet. And prophets usually were the ones that corrected kings. But Isaiah said, no, this king will also be a truth teller. He will be a poet. He will tell people. He will shine light on people. He would tell them their sins and tell them about salvation. And this week, most mysterious of all, the servant comes fully into the light. And you realize not only is he a king and not only is he a prophet, but he is the priest, the priest of Israel, the great high priest um, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Uh, The great high priest And so all three offices of Israel, the king and the prophet and the priest, they are all fulfilled in him, the prophet, priest, and king. And what does a priest do? Well, a priest is a couple of things. A priest basically mediates God to humans and then humans to God. So in this case, the priest is both a human being uh, who is very much in touch with our weaknesses, a child born in a manger, 
Uh, the lyrics to that song, Infant Holy, Infant Lowly, say it so well. Um, just the way that this child uh, lived as we do among the poor, uh, that he was suffered, uh, he was a man of sorrows, verse 3, he was acquainted with grief, he suffered as we do. So that's one aspect of a priest. They're sympathetic, they feel the pain of their people. But the second aspect is he's also the Holy One of Israel. Uh, verse 1 describes him as the arm of the Lord. The arm is a symbol of power. So he is not only this very sympathetic high priest, he was also the one, the Holy One of Israel, that has come to atone for our sins. So he's both this human, this very sympathetic human, like a counselor, like the best counselor you've ever had, plus he is the Holy God come down to pay for our sins. So I want to look at those two aspects of what a priest does. First of all, uh, you could not have a, a more sympathetic listener than this priest. Uh, I don't know if you've been to a counselor before, or if you have a best friend who listens really, really well, but you, you, there would be no human being that's ever been that would listen to you as well as this man would. He would get you completely. He would zero it, and he would, he would know exactly how you're feeling. Um, in verse 1, there's a certain translation called the message, which I really like, and this is how the message translation puts it. Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? Like what he's about to describe. Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? We think of the saving power of God as somebody like Superman or some powerful, uh, you know, like a Hercules figure, a demigod. That's what we would think of as saving power. But there was a song back in the 90s, I think it was in 1995. It was top 10 song. And the song was called, What If God Was One Of Us? I don't know if many of you remember that song by Joan Osborne, but uh, it was kind of controversial among Christians. But I thought it actually spoke very well to the nature of what would happen if God became one of us. And she says, what if God was one of us, just a slob? And that's one reason that people didn't like it. Uh, a slob like one of us, a stranger on the bus. And it was those lyrics that uh, upset a lot of Christians. But, I mean, listen to what, again, this is the message translation, but listen to what, this verse one says about the servant. The servant grew up a scrawny seedling, a tiny little tree. Nothing was attractive about him. No need to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. He was looked down on and passed over. And question would be, do we ever experience that same thing of being looked down on and passed over? When I was a Teenager, I would go to the beach with all my beautiful cousins and they were very witty and they were fit and they were confident. They were beautiful people. I felt very awkward and unnoticed in comparison to them. I never joined in the conversation. I just listened to them talk. And my savior, my priest, does not just say, um, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, Ben. You know, the savior, your savior, our priest says, I want to go th through that with you. I want to experience that the way you experience that. And so in Hebrews 4.15, we read that we have a high priest who empathizes with all of our weaknesses. He empathizes with all of our weaknesses. And that's why he's called a man of sorrows here. Again, Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like us in every way. What was not assumed cannot be redeemed. That's what one of the early church theologians said. What is not assumed by the Son of God cannot be redeemed. And that means he assumes, he takes into himself every single part 
of us. And if you've ever felt invisible and unnoticed and looked, at, looked over like I felt, he did too. It says in verse three that he was one from whom men look away. And I cannot fathom what Isaiah was thinking as he was seeing this vision and how he would, could possibly imagine that would come to pass. But this is what he's hearing and seeing from God as he's writing. Uh, he is writing about one from whom men look away. That means that he experienced a lot of loneliness. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus experienced loneliness. Um, but surely he did. I mean, he was so misunderstood by people. Some of the prayer requests from this past week uh, were um, to be healed from loneliness. I feel so alone in this season, and my loneliness and singleness is especially difficult during the holidays. Loneliness is a theme of Christmas that some of us try to forget, but it's there. It's a, it's a powerful theme of Christmas, of Advent, because America makes of Christmas uh, a family gathered around a fire opening presents. And that can be really hard if you're single. Um, and so the point would be that at Christmas, Jesus actually came to experience the anguish of loneliness with you, that he felt more ignored and forgotten than anyone ever has. Uh, that, you know, sometimes I feel like if I, if, if, if I disappeared, nobody would have noticed. I felt like that in high school. If I, if I had disappeared, nobody would notice. And uh, that's the same way the servant felt. It says again in verse three, we esteemed him not. He was, he was not one who somebody would have said, now that's a cool guy. Or I, would, I want to follow that guy. Like that's a, <clears throat> that guy could really plant a church. We esteemed him not. The servant says, I'm going to gather a family uh, of people where we can talk about that kind of thing. Where we can talk about feeling very low self-esteem. That's what the servant does. He's a very strange kind of hero. Again, going back to Superman, you really couldn't make an action figure out of this servant. Uh, it, you can't make a kind of an, a Captain America or a Wonder Woman or a Thor because in verse two it says he had no majesty to look at. He had no beauty to desire. And so if we feel ugly, he says, Father, I want to experience that ugliness with him. I want to take that into myself. I want to assume that myself. And if we feel ashamed of our bodies, he says, I want to experience that too. When he's hanging there naked on the cross, who could have felt more shame than him? With all those people looking at him and jeering at him. And here's the thing, unlike us, he never pretended like it didn't hurt him. And that's what really separates him from, from us is that we make these vows, we self-protect, right? We make these vows, I'm never gonna let them hurt me again. And so we kind of harden our hearts. We have to, or be too much. But the servant didn't ever do that. He never hardened his heart. He felt it every time. He openly wept. His playmates probably called him a crybaby because he was always feeling the, the depth of the hurt. Uh, in verse three, he was despised and rejected by other people. And we tend to think of him like a stoic philosopher, like, oh, he, I can take that, I've got my father, no problem at all. No, that's exactly the opposite. He felt it more than you feel it because he was so sensitive to pain. And so if you ever tell God, if you're tempted to tell God, or you think, you know, God, you can never understand what I'm going through, it's too painful. He would say, I was born in a manger to understand exactly what you're going through. You, there's nothing you could go through that I can't understand. That's the whole point, I came here I was rejected by my best friends, he would say. 
Uh, I was uh, on the cross completely alone. Everybody left me. And he's a man just like us. That's the first point. He was a person who grieves in all the ways that we get hurt. But the second point has also got to be said, which is that he's not like Mr. Rogers. As great as Mr. Rogers is, and he was a Presbyterian pastor, so I love Mr. Rogers, but this servant is not like Mr. Rogers because uh, not only does he grieve for all the ways we've been hurt and he speaks with that soft voice, um, he also recoils at all the ways that we hurt others. And that's a very important part of being a Christian. You're, yes, you are a victim of a lot of people's hurt, but you are also a victimizer. And you have hurt people badly. And, and so the, the priest not only comes to sympathize with you and your hurt, but also to pay the price for all of the ways you've hurt people. He absorbs that too. And he's the Holy One of Israel. 29 times, so this is now the second point, that he is the Holy One of Israel come to redeem us from our sins. 29 times in Isaiah, he uses the expression, the Holy One of Israel. It's not used often in the Bible, but Isaiah loves that expression, the Holy One of Israel. For instance, in Isaiah 54, 5, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. And some Old Testament scholars have said that Isaiah has the most exalted vision of Yahweh, of any writer in the Old Testament. So he has this vision of God, not only as this man of sorrows, but as the Lord of hosts. Moral perfection itself. Yahweh, I am who I am. And we are not that. We are the opposite of that. Uh, we are anything but moral perfection. We are morally unclean. We are wicked at times. And so when he comes to embrace us, when this priest comes to embrace humanity, it's not like he's embracing a teddy bear. It's not a big teddy bear. He's embracing like an angry porcupine with his quills out, defensive, and ready to attack and strike and so that's why it says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Because when he came to embrace us, it pierced him. It's like, like grabbing a, a thing of a, a, a thorn bush or a rose bush, just grabbing it. Uh, you, you're, it pierces you. Your, your hands bleed. And when he was on the cross, this priest, when he was hanging on the cross, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, it says in verse 10. He was crushed like a bug in a bag. That's a song by Radiohead that says, crushed like a bug in a bag. And it's a vision of something just being almost dehumanized. He was so mangled on the cross that you could barely recognize that he was a human being anymore. Part of the horror of it was you would look up there and say, is that a human that I'm looking at? What is that thing on that cross? And that's what happened to him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And the crushing is our sin collectively distorting him disfiguring him. Upon him, verse 5, was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's a very heavy thing. When you look at the priest hanging on the cross, that gives you a vision of your sin more than anything else you could look at. Nothing could ever show you your wickedness like looking at what happened to this man who was perfect on that cross. I had a very uh, kind and well-meaning counselor tell me on Wednesday, when I was telling her about how I felt really guilty about the situation, she very kindly said, you need to practice self-forgiveness. And I think I tried to do it, but at some point I was thinking, you know, I'm not sure that I can actually manufacture that in my head. I'm not sure that I can um, create peace in myself 
It felt a little bit like trying to write a bunch of zeros on a $1 bill and pretend like it was worth a million dollars. There's a sense in which, objectively, we can't really change anything no matter how we think about ourselves, but it changes everything when the moral weight of God, God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, when we see Him carrying our sins, then we can practice forgiveness. Then we can realize, I am forgiven by God out of the anguish of His soul. Verse 11, He shall bear their iniquities. When you see God sweating blood for you, that can actually do something psychologically in you where you can experience forgiveness in a way that self-forgiveness could never achieve. We've got to see something that startling and grotesque and powerful. The Holy One of Israel's hanging on a cross, and then we can actually receive forgiveness. I don't know the mechanics of that exactly, but that's what happens. There's a movie that um, came out a few years ago called True Grit. And uh, it was a movie about a bond between a horse and the horse's rider, uh, a young woman named Maddie. The horse was Little Blackie. Uh, the, the teenage girl was Maddie. <clears throat> and the climax of the movie, she's bitten by a rattlesnake. And the horse knows he's got to get her to a doctor quickly because they have such a strong bond. And so uh, the horse runs as fast as he can, um, deep into the night, burying her body to try to get to the town to get to the doctor. And He's grunting, you see him coughing, and, and they show a lot of this, uh, this travel, but he's silent, you know? Although, I mean, he's grunting, but obviously he's, <clears throat> he's, he's doing this, he's just burying her silently, which is part of the power of that scene. And eventually he collapses to the ground, and when I saw that, there's something about animals, there's something about an animal that does that that just breaks me open because of the innocence of that horse that loved her so much. And Isaiah compares this priest to an animal, uh, to, the, to the sweetest, kindest uh, animal, a lamb. It says in verse seven that, that the servant opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he knows when he attached himself to you, he knows what he has gotten into. And he knows that when you get on his back, when you are hanging there on his back, that he's got a long way to go to get you where he wants to get you. And it's going to cost him everything. And it says in verse 11, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous. And that is his destination for you. Nothing less than perfect righteousness. That's where he's carrying you. The total righteousness forever without any condemnation. Absolute peace of mind, assurance, of forgiveness, no matter what you've done, that's where this lamb is trying to take you. And nothing, here's the thing, nothing gives him satisfaction like taking you there. He loves to do that. That's his job. That's what he came to earth to do. It says in verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. So don't ever imagine, I, I can't bring this to God now because I've done so many things to disappoint him and I can't bring him another thing. You know, I've done that terrible thing again and he's gotta be sick of me. No, it says that he, he is satisfied. He is satisfied, it, it, it gives him great pleasure to see you once again experience his forgiveness. He loves that, that's why he came here. Think about how excited he was to serve this meal to his disciples. In verse uh, 15 of Luke 22, he basically says, um, he says to the disciples, you guys, you have no idea how much I have been looking forward to 
eating this Passover meal with them. Remember, we love these rascals.